What you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences. And I've always sort of found you would see things that you would not automatically have come across. Hello and welcome to the Parliamentary Review Podcast, the podcast that has a soft spot for raising standards. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and in each episode, I'm joined by directors, CEOs, CFOs, government ministers, and chairmen and women. The aim is to discover who these people are, the people who get up each morning and make Britain work. We discuss the innovation that leads to success in this country, and also we get their take on the current political and economic state of the country. Later on in this episode, you have the chance to hear Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Pickles, former Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government and Chairman of the Conservative Party, and of course, current co-chairman of the Parliamentary Review. But for now, we're joined by Inga Neves, founder and career strategist of Scion Mastery. Inga, hello. Hello. Hello, Matthew. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, We might as well get stuck straight in. It's been a few months since Scion Mastery appeared in the Parliamentary Review. What has happened in the ensuing months? Not much really happened during those uh, those ma- uh, months, but um, uh, we set the goals and um, uh, we set our objectives. What what we want to do for the next year and what will be our um, goals to achieve in the twelve months. Uh, we identify the problems that um, um, we are facing every day in terms of the students, in terms of their career, in terms of the students who are applying for jobs, who are applying for universities, who are applying to schools. And uh, we could see where the parents are struggling and where the employees are struggling to hire, to mm-hmm. hold, and uh, to actually blame the universities or the schools to prepare a very difficult to handle uh, generation that's going to lead the world to the future. Well, I'd like to talk more about that generation in a in a moment. But before we get there, a lot of time has passed since Scion Mastery was founded in 1993. What has changed in the market and what has stayed the same? The same, uh, the same is much easier, and I think it will stay always the same. Um, the traditionally English education seen as a, something that people could rely on, that as absolutely not changeable in terms of the base. The base structure is very clear, very um, easy to follow, and reliable, basically reliable. Um, let's, see, uh, let's, say, uh, let's say the obvious state. Everybody complains about system of education. Educational system is nowhere good, uh, nowhere in the world. Some countries go so far that they dismantled the system that existed before without even thinking where the new system will be and how it will be invented and what it would look like. Some countries proudly announced that they set an experimental school or university with cutting-edge technology determined to bring into the world future generations. Mm-hmm. Let's listen to this again and give me the answer as a parent. Do you really want a group of crazy, passionate, charismatic, forward-looking users of disruptive technology experiment with the future of your child. <laughs> exactly. Would you? Because it's an, un, it's an untested method, so you'd rather go with something that's strong and stable. Uh, in fact, Well, you, because we need a break, no? Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, you you've been quoted grow- in the past as stating that uh, the, there's a popularity of the British public school system amongst a certain class of Russian society, and that this is down to a failure in the Russian education system. Um, is that still the case? Absolutely. Yes, but it's not just the case in, in Russia. Uh, where else you could uh, rely on the education that much that uh, you know that your child will be coming out of GCCs with a stronger knowledge of the uh, language of uh, science of math that it will be equal all around the country basically the general uh, education level in England is a GCC's minimum so you expect that the person who is coming to you to work would know a simple math mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
and you know the rules and you know what to ask. There is system, and system has to be led with understanding what you what you are getting. But if someone is experimenting it and saying this you need for future now uh, not need for now you go and study coding at the six years old. Yes, sure, coding is very important now and it's one of the qualities that uh, people hiring for if you know coding. But besides of the coding, you better know how to write. Mm, mm. Those interpersonal so no skills a, are key. Not just the personal skills. Personal skills are very important. But if we are talking about the um, abilities, uh, I would like to separate. There is the skills that you will be paid for, and there is the skills that you will be invited for the dinner party. Mm-hmm. It's good to have both, but uh, to meet pleasure and your uh, job is probably a wrong thing. You wouldn't have both. Now, of course, you manage a quite large and well-trained team. Are they the secret to uh, Scion's success? Absolutely. They are the secret to Scion's success. Uh, I do lead. Um, but um, the, the leadership, if I were to lead people in my company, um, my students, their parents, tutors, in a traditional view of a leader, such as leader being a hero, a chosen chosen special person, right, who set the direction, makes the key decisions and energize the troop, let's go, we do this and achieve that. I will achieve some success and probably some of the fights will be very impressive, but I'm sure it wouldn't be uh, it's, the success will be short-lived. It wouldn't be for a long time. There is not a problem to run a company for two or three years easily. We do all know startups have been established by the charismatic leader, but we never heard of them three years later, right? Mm-hmm. To stay in a business for 25 years and stand through the troubles, uh, expected pitfalls and unexpected events is a skill that develops over the time with dedication, concentration, and yes, with sacrifices. But that's how you build the trust with, uh, with your clientele, how you build the trust with your partners. I've been through troubled times, and I've been through a very high time. And I'm going to say... Well, it's fantastic to hear uh, about perseverance because that is an attribute that really does lend to success in life. Um now, in your best practice article, you say that um, it is of the utmost importance for the next generation to have the skills necessary, not just academically for life, but also more of a well-rounded uh, individual. Uh, do you feel that the current educational regimes are turning out unprepared graduates? Um, well, uh, I will be very careful to say... Um that I actually think that they don't turn turn down enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, I believe that um, um, educational authorities, uh, universities, they have to take the students who are prepared to go through the uh, perseverance and uh, one, a passion for the subject is not enough. It's just not enough for success. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say that uh, I've been very passionate about ballet, being a ballet dancer, mm-hmm. right? But then I grew up and my body grew up and the ballet dancer is finished, but I still passionate about it. Right. Would anybody pay for me to watch me dancing the ballet? I don't think so. So but it's I more still about- have to leave. It's more about choosing a uh, a reasonable career path or a reasonable field of study as opposed to just studying something that one enjoys. Is that what we're saying here? Uh, yes, but it is a time when you some things that you are absolutely hate, and I would never be a doctor. I just scared of the blood, and mm-hmm. it's very reasonable for me to go through the limitations of that I was born with, created. So basically, I would never be a doctor. Mm-hmm. But the cutting off your limit limits that just you you're just like that is actually a good choice when you choose a career but the size of uh, uh, going for something that is will be useful for your life um, I think it's important to 
and dedicate three years of your time at a bachelor's degree, actually learning a skill. And if you are learning, uh, let's say, psychology or any numbers, um, like um, science, uh, math, engineering, but you never will be an engineer, but the skills that engineering degree or STEM degree would give to you, you will use for the rest of your life. It's logic. It's something to do with the numbers. You, in your life, I think everyone has to know financial literacy. And if you're good with, uh, if you learn how to uh, work with the numbers, even in your private life, it will be very useful for you. Now, you mentioned earlier um, that the next generation coming um, is uh, sometimes can be rather challenging. Um, can you elaborate on that? Yes, I think, uh, uh, yes, everybody complains about the next generation, right? It's um, a tale as old as time. <laughs> uh, yes, and I have, a, and it's very nice, uh, uh, Simon Sinek, I think, um, he, he's the one who was um, uh, complaining about millennials. And uh, the first reason uh, why he believes that millennials are labeled as a hard-to-manage, lazy, entitled, unreliable, infantile, as the first reason for this is parenting, then technology, impatience, and environment, right? Parenting was the first one. So uh, we were, uh, how is it going with a parent-child relationship, child-teacher relationship, parent uh, teacher relationship, I wonder why anyone would want to have children in the first place, because we moved from the um, child, uh, we, we moved to the child serving economy, right? So it's helicopter parents who are um, just simply forgetting their own life and they all surround their life around the children, right? The um, uh, fantastic um, AR, VR, user app, selective schools, Blackboard, whiteboard, behavioral control apps, personality test, career profiling, character predisposition test, Alexa, Siri, everything is the, the robots who will be taught how to soothe your child when it's depressed, right? So it's technology been backing up with everything is around the, to bring the uh, next generation to the standards that will, will be fantastic future. But one thing we forgot to give them, what we didn't have as a children, as a parent, is actually what we had. We had a, a very clear stated rules. We had very clear stated manners. We had a respect to the teachers. We had a certain uh, behavioral pattern. How do you listen to the older generation? How do you listen to your teacher? And at, the, at this point of time, I see that parents are very quickly obviously tiring of uh, being responsible and blamed for whatever the child doing. Uh, they're very quickly blaming the school, blaming the teachers. Teachers are not very inspiring. Uh, teachers are not able to motivate. Um, I have a, a parent who coming and said, could you please tell this and this to my child? I ask, why don't you tell it? And they just say, we are scared. <laughs> Parents are scared of their own children. So we need a return to uh, more of a, a firm framework within the household for the, the coming generations. Yes. And if uh, all of us, meaning all of us parents and the educators, are blamed for bringing up the very difficult children, uh, then don't we need to get together and actually see what we can do for that child? Because if we just uh, praising the child because it, the, the child woke up eight o'clock in the morning and uh, went to school, I don't think it deserves a pay. Well, this sounds like a, a, a whole change in mindset is needed. What what steps can be taken uh, to achieve this? I think uh, teachers and um, parents should really get together more often and stop blaming each other for whatever child doing. And I think the uh, first thing you have to do is give the child responsibility. As mm. simple as uh, what is what child is responsible to do around the house. And it couldn't be just to take the garbage out and uh, you're clapping and then kiss and uh, uh, putting the fireworks because child took the garbage out. No, it has to be a responsibility. And uh, if we follow the Mia Kelmer Springle, approach the needs of children, the first thing is the need 
for love and security. Yes, we uh, educators and the teachers, we have and the parents, we have to look after our children and we have to provide love and security at home, right? And the, the next one is the new experiences. Yes, your child has to wake up and has to try something something new. That's how we grow. And we ourselves have to try something new to lead with an um, example, by example. And the uh, next one is the praise and recognition. And praise and recognition, you can't praise them for something which is expected to do. Otherwise, you will create, um, <laughs> there is a term um, that's called um, stroke economy. Mm-hmm. It's basically, it's, uh, everybody needs a kind of a stroke and encouragement, acknowledgement that you exist. And a normal person will be going like um, maybe 60 strokes a day. Let's say you go for the coffee and they say, oh, hello, how, how are you doing today? Here's your stroke. But if you stroke the child all the time and your child requires for this well-being 600 strokes a day, gosh, it's a high-maintenance employee. What are you going to do with them? You need to uh, put in your um, uh, salary packet, package the provisions for the someone who will be motivating and uh, acknowledging and praising this, that one child to work. It has to be very um, deliberate. And you praise the behavior that you want to get. If your child is behaving bad, don't praise it. Don't give any recognition for that. Don't give any fuel to behave the same way again. Um, and the last one, but not the least one, is responsibilities that mm-hmm. I already mentioned. Responsibilities for for what? You decide. If there is no responsibilities in the house, then how do you expect them to understand what does it mean, responsibilities? How do you expect them to take responsibilities for the town, for the community, for the whole world, if a child in the beginning, in the formative years, never had any responsibilities? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it does seem, uh, and it has been stated before, that the coming generation knows uh, knows quite a lot about their um, their rights, but not what their responsibilities in a society are. And being a productive and responsible member of a society is essential for that society to be successful. Um, you also mentioned that intergenerational wealth uh, can lead to a, almost an intellectual malaise of sorts in successive heirs. What are you doing to address this? Well, it's a very difficult topic. It's my, um, my desire in the last uh, uh, 20 years um, was useful in leading the next generation um, and their parents to find uh, the way how to uh, save the wealth, how to um, enhance the wealth, how to not lose it. And uh, I'm particularly interested in the expression of a uh, third-generation curse uh, from the stable man to the gentleman back to the stable man in the three generations. Mm. And uh, uh, that's my uh, one of the topics that I'm interested in besides of my work. Um, good, but it's related to my work. And uh, I, I looked at the very famous um, um, dynasty, let's say, um, for example, Medici in France um, for 300 years and how they were choosing who will be the leader of which part of the business. Um, and they had a deep down when there was not very strong leaders of family or the, there was a sibling rivalry. There were a lot of things. But um, uh, one thing I learned that you have to remember is that Difficult decision, easy life. Easy decision is difficult life. Sometimes um, a child doesn't want to leave the family, doesn't want to do anything, but they are capable to do it. They have characteristics and the skills to actually lead the family business. And in this case, um, you have to find the dialogue between parents, between future, between advisors, to avoid the um, structures, the legal structures, uh, or funds that will be taken over to, pre- to prevent 
the child is losing the money, losing what our generation, what your grandparents was working for, which is quite often. Well, it That's is. It is a is. very well-known uh, phenomenon in the past uh, yeah. century. Um, in fact, uh, some a very famous example would be the Vanderbilt family of America. Um, now, it is undisputed that they there is quite a bit of wealth left, but uh, the the vast chunk of it went within a whole generation. So there was one generation of uh, of very wealthy and successful Vanderbilts, and then it was gone within 50 years. Uh, so it's trying to avoid that sort of a, a, a situation that you are striving towards. Now, just to change tack slightly, how do you feel the United Kingdom's exit from the European Union will affect international students? Well, I think actually it wouldn't affect much as the international students because still... Um, British education is providing the base, very solid base, unquestionable base. And um, uh, we have a new development, and I like how England approach um, very cautiously all this new and charismatic, passionate, uh, and self, selfie, self, self, self driven economy. Mm-hmm. Um, you're giving the base, and it's exactly when the children need the base. Once you have a manner, once you have a rule, then you can build on that, whatever your charisma is saying to you to do. But if you don't have a good base, how are you going to lead? How are you going to thrive? Where are you going to find the passion for anything? You have nothing to build the passion on. So I think that the um, educational system it's fantastic, and I don't think it will be any suffering from the Brexit. If anything, I think it would be even more popular. Do you believe that part of the educational establishment in this country's success is also down to British culture in general? Yes. Yes. British culture is uh, dictating that uh, you... <laughs> well. I am British. I should talk about me being British as well. But it's one of the attractions that uh, uh, drawing people to country. That's something that you could rely on. You could rely on a war. You could rely on a gentleman's agreement. You could rely that you will be actually protected in this country. And how do you feel the British personality and the British culture differs from those of Eastern Europe and Asia? Mm, It does differ a lot. Um, Very interesting question. We are different. Uh, The Eastern European is different. The Asian is different. The English are different. And to be honest, I, I really admire the differences. I don't want to be like an Asian. I don't want to be like any English. I don't want to be like a, a pure a Russian or Polish or whatever. I like London because it's international. I could pick something good from each culture. Uh, but England got a, English people, they do have something that's very reliable, admirable, a stability, is confidence and pride. That sometimes may be annoying for other people. Yes, I am English and I am proud of it. I am English, I am in New York, and I am proud of it. Um, you have you have something that people want to have. Hmm. Well, of course, um, the news at the moment is full of talk of the coronavirus. Do you feel that this will impact your business in any way? It already does. Oh, it already does. And, uh, well, I could talk only about my business and uh, my situation, my issues. If you tell to a child that you have a legal, legitimate reason not to go to school, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> but on the top of this, I had mothers, I had parents, a local parents, not a foreign parents, local parents, who was saying, oh, when they are going to close the school, but I could just go to the country, look myself there with my children and love them. So 
coronavirus, there are some good in this. <laughs> it's pervasive good, but uh, um, children love it. Now, Please do you don't. feel that there is anything that government needs to do to stabilize uh, businesses uh, who interact with those traveling from outside the United Kingdom? That, to be honest, I'm not qualified to answer that question. I don't think I have enough uh, knowledge to uh, suggest. And uh, um, I'm afraid that whatever I would uh, advise or propose wouldn't wouldn't be valid. I just don't have enough knowledge and don't have enough tools. Well, let's let's um, let's give you uh, the moment, uh, a chance for thirty seconds here. Say, I was to name you Minister of State for Education for the next thirty seconds. If you had a magic wand, what educational um, policies would you put into place? Parents and teachers have to get together for the cause of their ch- children more often and uh, educational ministers have to think about increase the paying time for the teachers to spend uh, time with the students the classes should be smaller so it all boils down to communication in the end for success absolutely absolutely Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, in the next 10 years, what are the greatest challenges that will affect the international student industry? Internet. Uh, Internet schools, um, uh, online tuition, online learning. That's available for everybody all around the world. And that's fantastic. But there is no substitute for one-to-one to see your teacher in front of you. So I believe that education will be more expensive because of um, uh, you do need a mentor that you see, that we are still human, that you could touch, you could ask the question. You, you see eyes-to-eyes and not through the computer. Uh, you can't teach uh, empathy through the computer. You can't teach Siri to tell you, oh, don't worry, next time you will be doing better. It's not going to work. We want to know that you care. And that care could be seen only from personal contact. Well, Inga, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. Um, And I very much hope we get a chance to speak again at some point in the near future. Inga, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. I hope that you enjoyed our chat with Inga Neves, especially learning more about the challenges facing the sector and how the whole team at Scion Mastery are continuing to raise standards. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with the Parliamentary Review's co-chairman, Lord Pickles. Lord Pickles served as Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government in David Cameron's cabinet before receiving a peerage in 2018. Lord Pickles remains active as the UK's anti-corruption champion and the country's special envoy for post-Holocaust issues, as well as being a keen vexologist. That's flags to you and I. And now Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Pickles. Lord Pickles, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Um, Now, I'm sure you won't uh, mind me reminding the listeners that uh, you've been involved in politics, both local and national, for quite a number of decades. Um, indeed, before we, the days we were in the common market. Um, you know, given your experience over those years, um, what thoughts have you had over the last few weeks and months about the current political uh, situation the country finds itself in? Situation is quite dire because we have um, a parliament that. Um, is by and large useless. It's like a bored teenager on a long drive, and um, it wants, it knows what it doesn't want, and it's so bored with Brexit, but it can't agree. So no matter what you put up, it's against it. Are you in favour of a referendum? No, I don't want that. Are you in favour of uh, remaining within the single man? No, I don't want that. Are you in favour of, because no, I don't want to do that, no, no. And are you in favour of leaving without a deal? No, we don't want to do that. So it's against everything, but it, there isn't enough votes to be in favour of something, and it could be by the time this, this 
podcast goes out that that uh, Boris has uh, started on the process of the bill because we'll be voting on that today. Uh, but even then, what people don't seem to understand, this is not the end of Brexit. This is barely opening the door of Brexit. We've got years of negotiations about fight, about trade agreements, relationships with uh, with Europe, putting uh, putting down pieces of legislation. We get our agriculture, our fisheries, our financial services into place. Brexit is going to go on and on and, and, and sure on and on. To it. I'm sure we are. Um, now uh, the question is, I, I should actually remind listeners that we are talking on the day that the second reading of the European uh, uh, Act will. Uh, take place. So as we speak, we don't quite know. As well, perhaps like the government front bench, don't know what's going to happen. Um, you compare Parliament to a petulant teenager. What do you do to a petulant teenager to sort it out? Um, is there a chance that it will see sense and push this through this bill without breaking amendments? Is there a chance it will vote for its own uh, for a general election? What do you, how do you see this playing out at the moment? The sensible thing will be to put this deal through because I've always been of the view a deal is better than no deal because this is just the beginning. In order to start the process of Brexit, start the process of uh, the United Kingdom taking over powers that it's, uh, it's not really exercised for 40 odd years, the smart thing is to get this thing through now. But in a way, it's not about Brexit itself. If there was a free vote, this deal would have gone through. Mrs May's deal would have gone through. But it's about politics. It's about a Labour Party that thinks it has a chance uh, trying to make the Prime Minister, whether it was Theresa May or Boris Johnson, uh, look as though that they are uh, in office but not in power, of um, delaying as long as possible. There's a lot of talk about um, an election uh, in the autumn, maybe back end of November, beginning of uh, of December, uh, something for us to look forward to before Christmas. It's beginning to look less likely. It's beginning to look as though they might want to drag it into spring to get as far away as possible um, from the rather decisive moment that uh, Boris came back with a deal. We have to remind ourselves that nobody thought he could deliver um, a deal and it does quite shock them and I, if you remember all this process went through in order to ensure that we are left without a deal when we have a deal suddenly oh no it's not that kind of deal we don't want that kind of deal we want something different I think the vast majority of people in this country whether <coughs> remain or leave uh, now would be very satisfied for this to come to a um, able conclusion and as correctly just said, uh, because when it does come to those on, in the opposition who claim to want this to happen, and then to, uh, uh, introduce wrecking amendments, they introduce uh, new objections to it, the general public are getting quite frustrated. But you've got to understand that quite a lot of people don't get beyond a small area within Westminster, sometimes cliche referred to as the Westminster bubble and go back to their own patch. Now, by and large, everybody hates their MP, except when they're at home, doing the fairs, doing, you know, uh, wandering around, uh, helping people. So they, in a way, they're cosseted to that great, which I feel is coming as a tsunami of change. I do, uh, of course, MP for Brentwood for... Uh, uh, 25 for, years. Absolutely. Um, what would you, I mean, of course, you resident there as well, despite being a proud option, obviously, representing a good Essex seat. What would you say to your, your old constituents right now? Hang in there, it'll be all right? Well, um, uh, you're, uh, it's different when you're a member of parliament because, you know, you've got to kind of toe the government line a little bit. So one thing I found now is I've got my weekend back and I say what I want. And uh, I think I always say to, um, our constituents is that it is pretty hopeless down there. Thanks, Mark. On that, I think, uh, honest assessment, it's something I think the Parliamentary Review has always done quite well, talking frankly about problems, issues, and also not just 
good practice. Good well, I used to. I mean, I used to read it when I was a, a member of Parliament, um, because I mean, what you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences, mm. and I've always sort of found uh, it quite a, um, uh, a kind of a chatty magazine, but also you would see things that you would not automatically have come across and certainly have attended um, the receptions over the year and it's amazing the things you kind of pick up and I think it's important to stress it's not because uh, politicians are, are, aren't interested because honestly as you will know more than anyone it's an issue of time and to be able to have a channel uh, and a platform where you can keep communication lines between businesses schools and Policymakers, it's, it's so exceptionally important. No, I think so, and you know, and it's important that it's beholding to nobody. People, um, uh, you know, pay for to be part of the publication, pay for to be uh, um, uh, members, and it's a way of not being holding to government, not beholding to anything. Uh, no, uh, you're echoing the words, of course, your fellow uh, chairman, uh, Lord Blunkett, has said. What well, some might not know uh, is that you started your political journey perhaps even further left than David Blunkett. Oh, absolutely, I was a communist. Now, uh, what, what, what uh, was it? At the age of 14, I got. Uh, I was bought um, the um, <clears throat> Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution, and I read it from cover to cover. I tried to read it a few years back, and I just couldn't follow anything. Oh, so I was going to say, perhaps you might know the minds of the uh, show front bench better than, better than they do themselves. From my position when I first joined, I would regard them as recalcitrant uh, <laughs> running dogs of the capitalist system. Now, what was it that, that uh, moved you from radical Marxist to running uh, the only uh, inner city council controlled by the Conservatives in the 80s? Well, I was very young, and um, I was fascinated by what was happening in um, uh, in what was then Czechoslovakia and uh, Dubček, and the the revolution that was taking place there inside communism, and the way in which uh, he was uh, repressed by uh, by Mr. Uh, Brezhnev, yeah, and the tanks and taking over. I was so angry. I'm 16, remember, I'm really angry. I thought, what's the most outrageous thing I can do? Um, I will join the, um, I'll join the Conservative Party as a protest. And I kind of sticked around, and my family thought it was the funniest thing that ever happened uh, to it. I was Eric the Tory. And- um, well, I think you announced this quite grandly as a, as, a, as a grand protest. I did indeed, but um, do you know, I kept going down and, um, it was, a, it was an exciting time. Um, people were developing the ideas of what the Conservative Party should be. Selsdon Man, even Heath looked radical. We had different ideas and just, it eventually clicked. And at some point, I became a Conservative. And that was 51 years ago. I think I'm definitely 100% a Tory now. Through and through. Through and through. Although I do know the story, uh, most most uh, people might guess that a, 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 a dynamo conservative like yourself would have perhaps a portrait of uh, Mr. Thatcher or Mr. Churchill in their office, but uh, who is it that you have? That um, I Che Guevara. Uh, which always, I always had him over my uh, left shoulder for visitors, and they always used to kind of, you see their eyes going up and thinking, who, you know, I can't possibly be with. Someone asked me if it was Desi Arnaz, I thought it was um, <laughs> married to Lucille Ball. But no, the reason I, I did that was to remind me and to remind my uh, officials that without constant vigilance, the cigar chomping commies would take over. <laughs> I'm sure David Bunk was in the room to reply to that, actually. Um, but um, in, in that long journey, you eventually ended up, of course, in 2010, doing something most Conservatives would never thought they would have to do, but in a coalition government with, the, of all people, the Liberal Democrats. That's right. Now, um, for something I think perhaps today more than ever, uh, people and our politics seems to be almost wholly determined um, on how we voted in a referendum three years ago. Yeah, I mean, the most normal thing would happen after something like that, mm. would be the would be the country would come together, and if anything, we're 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 more divided 
mean, I thought working in the coalition, I'm proud to have been part mm-hmm. of that coalition. Um, I'm proud to have worked alongside the Liberal Democrats, who I think realise that, like all minority partners in a, in a coalition, they would suffer at the polls. Do you think we've lost the ability uh, recently as a, as, a, as a people to work with those that we might disagree with on, on issues more than we used to? I'm not sure that's right. Um, I mean, you can see various members of the Conservative Party working closely with Liberal Democrats on Labour to defeat their own government. But it's not a thing I think I would want to encourage. Quite. Um, and I, I should remind you, listen, we are calling this the In Victoria, um, just over the road at Cardinal Place, uh, a fantastically new de- de- development site which wouldn't have been there without some of uh, your uh, legislation. What was the proudest? I, I personally approved it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. What was the proudest moment you think in uh, serving Secretary for five years? It's um, my actual proudest moment. We did a thing called uh, Triple Families, which was the first centre-right uh, attempt to deal with poverty and to deal with um, difficult families that were causing a disproportionately large amount of um, of, of call upon the. Um, uh, upon the state and it was on the basis of tough love it's on the basis of getting people into jobs it's about dealing with uh, uh, the kind of the whole the family as a whole not just one or two individuals that, had a, that were having a problem and I'm pleased that it's continued um, and since I should very much stress since of course you're uh, stepped down being an MP you do have your weekends back but that's not to say you haven't remained very active and very um, uh, busy of course because you use government's anti-corruption uh, champion shone the harsh light of day over malpractice in the local government. Um, indeed, the Queen's speech we've just had includes some of uh, your recommendations from uh, 2016. Um, I think a couple of things on that. First of all, are you surprised? Um, I may imagine you may not be at some of the backlash towards in this country introducing uh, voter ID for voting. It is absurd, and it's particularly absurd coming from the Labour Party because it was largely Labour's vulnerability uh, that got my interest in trying to do something about it. And um, it's a bit like saying, you know, you're requiring people to show some ID, uh, that this is suppressing voting. It's a bit like saying the post office is suppressing parcels because they demand to see uh, uh, some ID. I think um, They've got um, uh, a bee into their bonnet that this is something like they've got in the state to repress it's not. Mm. It's about giving confidence to the system. Now the Electoral Commission and Foreign Observers have warned us for such a long time that our electoral system is vulnerable. And it's, it's to misquote um, uh, John Major, we are really sort of old maids, cycling to Evensong and and Warbane, yeah, it's such a basic thing, it's an important thing. And it was kind of interesting uh, in some of the trials, um, they did um, a focus group with a bunch of uh, young uh, Asian girls and they said they thought the process of photo ID would actually give them a greater confidence in the fairness of the system. I met and make all kinds of uh, recommendations to stop uh, postal fort harvesting, uh, to 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 stop various fraud taking place, to stop um, intimidation at counts, to stop intimidation outside polling stations. Uh, I think you referenced it earlier, the the Westminster bubble. A lot of the, the places where this occurs and the places where this does go on are places where perhaps. Uh, Many members, many people in the press don't usually go to. No, they, no, I don't. Uh, uh, we saw a YouGov poll that said the overwhelming majority, well in the sixty percent, thought these, this idea was sensible. Yeah, and I, 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 um, I, I imagine you're quite proud that that recommendation is uh, in the speech. Yes, I mean I'm a bit frustrated they didn't do it sooner, but it's, nevertheless I'm very happy that it, they. They are doing it. It's as if the government's time has been taken up by something else and we're not focused on anything yeah, domestic. Absolutely. Um, but with a man, though, with his roots in uh, local government, uh, do you think, and, and how much you've worked with, this, with that report, especially looking at them carefully, how would you rate our current state of local municipal politics? 
Look at Goodman's very good. I mean, look at Goodman, don't get me wrong, it's, uh, it's by and large corruption free and it does a remarkably good job. And it was in truth my worries about local government and that these measures were brought in. I don't believe the fraud is big enough to be able to take a parliamentary seat, but it is big enough to take a council. And if you are negligent, uncaring about the probity of the poll, you're likely to be equally negligent about the awarding of contracts uh, 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 to your friends. Uh, so it's, it's all passed up. But look, government is, is, is a very enduring part of our constitution. I got a bit stick because we had to take some money from them, but by and large, they survive very well. Excellent. Now, uh, beyond um, obviously uh, that work, you also, of course, uh, the British envoy for uh, post Holocaust issues. Yeah, sure. I think it's very dear to your heart. Um, I know you've done some fantastic uh, work recently, including with a uh, former Shadow Chancellor from the Review uh, in Balls. Um, would you mind, uh, if you could just let the listeners know what projects you are working on with that and, and really the importance that has to so many communities around? Well, I used to be very unpleasant about Ed Ball, and he used to be very unpleasant about me. But I found working with him uh, remarkably easy, and we've not had a, a single row in two years. And by now, we're beginning to be able to, re to finish each other's sentences. We're building a, a memorial to the Holocaust uh, next to Parliament uh, with a learning centre below it. And the reason why the Prime Minister chose that site is that um, it was David Cameron and he wanted to ensure that when people left the memorial they would look and see Parliament and recognise that it was the last bastion against tyranny but more important to remind people who work in Parliament that, that the legislature has a choice it can either protect its citizens or it can oppress its citizens and we do know that um, uh, that it was a compliant legislature that brought in the Nuremberg uh, laws. And at a time when there are parts of Europe that are seeking to rewrite their history and seeking to see themselves as only the victims of the Nazis, I'm determined that we should tell the truth in an unblinking uh, way. Um, we are, I suppose, at a critical crossroads when the last survivor is likely mm -hmm. to uh, not be no longer with us within the next decade and a half. And at that point, we do know that um, uh, history starts to be reassessed. I think it was Simon Sharma that, that talked about this. And he was referring to the French Revolution. And of course, most of the books written in the 1850s are the ones that have uh, shaped um, our view of the French Revolution. But the difference is this, that uh, slightly over 100 years ago, my grandfather, Edgar, mm. grabbed hold of his Lee Enfield and walked out of a trench in the Somme and walked towards um, the Germans. And within a few minutes, uh, most of the people who'd been being brought up with, most of his friends were dead. Nobody doubts that he did that. But there's a whole industry out there that doubts that the Holocaust took place. So that's why it's important that we help frame that narrative. And uh, any reference as well, it's, it's, it's so important, especially at this, this time, this time in history, so many years afterwards, that uh, people, young people in schools get the correct education about it. How do we compare as a country in doing that? compared to some of our European friends? We, we um, I think, compare remarkably well, uh, and particularly because we've got a mixture of things. Uh, we, ins we ensure through the lessons of Auschwitz that two pupils from every secondary school go to Auschwitz each year, uh, that they have a preliminary meeting, uh, a visit and a, a wrap-up. We ensure that um, Holocaust Day um, uh, is remembered in January. Now, I can remember starting that, uh, or I'm not starting it, but being part uh, of a foot soldier of people that put it together. And, you know, it was like one man and a dog, but now it's quite a, a massive, it's, it's a massive um, event. So I think we are quite good at remembering that. I think 
where we perhaps do need to have a wider understanding is beyond the death counts and we need to kind of understand uh, the Anstatt group, which was the roving murder squads, um, how um, important they were. You were more likely to have been shot in a ditch than to end up in a, in a death camp. Um, and uh, they, the interland of that is Lithuania, where I was uh, last week uh, talking to colleagues and through, through Belarus and the Ukraine. And it's really important that we ensure that we we register where those death sites are. And I think uh, certainly, uh, and when we sit down next to speak, which hopefully won't be too uh, long away, it's and I think we'd be very happy to, to keep updates on how that how that project is going because it's so important. And people do need to be aware of it. Um, looking to the future, though, um, I imagine it could be actually very uh, content and happy. Former Prime Minister, friend and colleague David Cameron just released. Book and you came, you quite unscathed from it. I can't, it was very nice about yes. it. Um, I even bought the audio version because he was reading it, and he obviously, you know, but there was a fair bit of affection, and, and, yes. and I'm rather glad they left out one or two of the other embarrassing things. <laughs> Maybe another time, yeah. yes. Um, but um, it's um, important, I think. Uh, I'm conscious of the time, so but I'm, I think it's important that today people have become so perhaps um, caught up in what's happening in this country regarding Brexit. Um, looking to the future, how would you, and what would you say that it's a positive thing that, that this country has to look forward to? Well, we're a large trade, we're a large trading nation, we're a large uh, economy, we're a liberal uh, uh, democracy, and it would be good to get through uh, Brexit over the coming years and it would be good to start to look at some of the social issues uh, that we need to tackle those that have been left behind uh, by our economic uh, uh, progress and it would be good to see some solid investment in this country both in terms of its infrastructure but also in, in terms of the way it operates as a democracy. And I know that's going to be a huge focus of the next review. Uh, of course, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. As always, it's been a pleasure interviewing and learning from our guests. I hope that you all enjoyed listening. Until next time, let's raise a glass to raising standards. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find every episode on iTunes, YouTube, and Spotify. The views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own. They do not represent the opinions of the Parliamentary Review, Westminster Publications, Lord Pickles, Lord Blunkett, David Curry, or any other guest on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Parliamentary Review, please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk.